Shalom Aleichem, we're exploring the Sikha of Lakut Sikha's volume 17, Tazria HaChodesh. Very deep, profound, you might say fundamental Sikha in the Rebbe's Torah and in Hasidus in general. Just going to try to share some ideas that are here. So the Rebbe begins the Sikha by pointing out that the fact that this portion, this Shabbos, we're going to take out two Torahs. Incidentally, we take out three Torahs for Rosh Chodesh, but leaving that aside, there's two readings, the reading of Tazria, the normal Torah portion, and the additional reading of HaChodesh, which is read in preparation for the holiday of Passover, which picks out the Paschalam and the miracle of our salvation. And these two portions come out simultaneously this year. And the Rebbe says when things happen in Torah, there's no happenstance. There's no happenstance in life at all, and certainly in Torah. If you think about it, the two themes of HaChodesh and Tazria seem to be opposite themes. Why so? Because uh, we know that in Torah, there are two general approaches vis-a-vis our relationship with God. There's a discussion sometimes that the relationship is primarily up-down, top-down, and sometimes primarily bottom-up. Well, how do we mean? Sometimes we say, well, the Jewish people are all about the fact that God came down and miraculously chose us and, and, and made us his people and gave us a Torah. It's all about what he gives us. What can we do? We're little people. We're sort of like following along. We're swept away by the, by the power, by the, by, the, by the revelation. Without that, we don't have a connection. Conversely, though, we often talk about the fact that, no, where do we see the true contribution that we make? And, and where does Hashem really take pleasure from our service when we offer up our part and we do the best we can? In the Aramaic of it, the Kabbalistic languages, itaruta de la Ela, inspiration from above, or itaruta de la Tata, inspiration from below. And there's much discussion in Kabbalah and in Hasidus, uh, which should which should take first, who should initiate? Should God initiate or do we initiate? And the truth is, there's both sides. At times we celebrate the fact that God initiates the relationship and we get swept away. And at times we celebrate the fact that we initiate the relationship and God follows suit. And here in these two portions, we seem to see both opposites coming together. The portion of HaChodesh clearly represents God sweeping us away. It's the HaChodesh means renewal, miracle. Exodus, Passover, he just took us out and miraculously made us his people. Whereas Tazria, what does Tazria begin? What is it about? A woman who will give seed, who conceives and gives birth to a child, to a boy. And it's explained in the Talmud that when the woman conceives first, gives seed first, so to speak, it gives birth to a boy. The woman and the male represent God an embodiment of God's relationship with the Jewish people. And when we say she conceives first, she conceives first There's a male child that represents that. How do we reach a higher level than Hashem? How do we make the service stronger and greater? When, the, when she conceives first, meaning when the Jewish people initiate, comes from us, even though our service is, is, is much lesser than what God can give us, so to speak, infinitely so. However, it's coming from us. And the, the woman, the Jewish people, the recipient, comes forth and gives seed and gives the initiation of the service, it gives birth to a male child. It represents, it touches the highest levels and it becomes a male type service which represents consistency and what have you and strength. So which one is it? Is this Shabbos the theme of HaChodesh? 
renewal, miracle, God does everything, or the theme of Tazria, that God is waiting for us to initiate. And that's where the action is. That's where the points are. And the Rebbe points out further that um, we take a look at the Jewish calendar. We find that we have an interesting combination in our calendar. We have months and we have years. This is really unique to the Jewish calendar because in most other calendars, so if you have the Gregorian calendar, for example, it's a, it's a solar calendar. It's based on the cycle of the sun, 365-day cycle, and that's a year. There isn't really a month in that cycle. The month is just, uh, you chop up the 365 days in 12 parts, and you make it work. And some days have a month, a day more, a day less, you add a day, whatever you need. But basically, all there is in that calendar is a solar cycle. There isn't a moon. The moon is a barometer. Conversely, perhaps the Muslim calendar, which is a lunar calendar, they only have that lunar system. What is a lunar cycle? 29 and a half days, it's a month. There is no such thing as a year per se. 12 months becomes a year. But the year is where to borrow a term. It's a, it's a month calendar. In the Jewish calendar though, we have both things. We have a month based on the lunar cycle, and we also have a year based on the solar cycle. We have both things. And it's pointed out that that's why in the Jewish calendar, there's two heads. You ask any Jew, when does the beginning of the Jewish calendar? And the answer is, it depends how you look at it. Like every Jewish question has got two answers. Either it's Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, or it's Nisan. Tishrei is the beginning of the year, and Nisan is the beginning of the month. Aha, how's that for confusing? Why can't we just have one beginning? And the answer is because we have two sides to our calendar. We have a lunar system, which is the month. And we have a solar type of arrangement, which is the year, and we want to have the cake and eat it. The message here is, the Torah is telling us that God established the world and the Jewish people who are supposed to be the source of energy to the world through their service of Hashem. The world was created for the sake of the Torah and the sake of the Jewish people so that we should do Torah and mitzvahs and, and bring Hashem down to earth. And therefore the Jewish people have these two things, which as we'll see in the Sicha, fundamental to the existence of the world and their relationship to its creator who is the essence of the world. Namely, what are these two systems? We have miracle and we have nature. Moon represents renewal. The Hebrew word for a month, which is based on moon, is chodesh, which means renewal. It represents a concept of miracle. Every month it's something new. It's a miracle. It's not uh, just uh, consistent, just plain and the sameness. It's renewal. Whereas shana year, which goes by the sun, shana means repetition. That's what Shana means. Just like when you study the Mishnah. Why is it called Mishnah? Because you would study it. You would repeat it. So we have these two concepts. And that's why we have two heads. We have Nisan, which the word Nisan means a miracle. And we have Tishrei, which the word Tishrei is a scramble of the letters Reshit, of the simple beginning, because we have two sides. We have the miraculous relationship, which began in the month of Nisan and is symbolized by the fact that we calendarize ourselves and our holidays by the lunar cycle, by renewal, by Chodesh, Nisan, 
We're not a natural people. God makes miracles for us. We know that God's really in charge. Conversely, we also live that life within nature. And that's why we have Tishrei Reshit, the beginning of a linear uh, system, not one that, uh, that's renewed and miraculous. It's simple nature. And that is uh, spelled out in the fact that we have a year. So again, we have these two columns, which line up very well with HaChodesh and Tazria. God's input and our input. Miracle nature, moon and sun. And again, we find that uh, these both columns come together. We find that the Jewish calendar has both. I'm not familiar with every single calendar, but uh, to my knowledge, most calendars choose one way or the other. That's why in the Muslim calendar, for example, Ramadan can change. It can be in any season of the year because they don't have the concept of the leap year and, and making sure that the holidays should always be on, uh, on a certain time of the year. Like we have Lahavdal Pesach has to be in spring, which is a, a solar type thing, a seasonal thing. No, it sticks to either sun or moon. Either you're living miraculous or you're living natural. The Jewish way is somehow a combination of both calendars. And the way the Rebbe says it in the Sikha, that the Torah speaks about it in this week's, in the section of HaChodesh, that this month, the month of Pesach, HaChodesh Hazel Lochem Rosh Chadashim, this month should be for you the beginning of months, the head of the months. Rishon Hu Lochem is the first, Lechotche Hashana, to the months of the year. So even as we're speaking about months, we evoke the concept of year. And the Rebbe shows in the Sicha numerous sages, numerous statements and teachings from our sages, the Midrash, the Talmud, where it says, uh, the converse also to be true, the, the opposite that Hashem integrates nature within miracle and miracle within nature, the month within the year and vice versa. We can take a look at the Sikha for the details of the various sage, phrases of our sages. What is this all about? So again, to sum up what we learned so far, the Sikha is going to present to us that there's a two-column system, as I called it on top of the screen, that God has with the Jewish people and through us with the world. That's point A the Sikha is going to make. And that's and point B the Sikha is going to make, which is the deeper point of the Sikha, is that these two columns are really combined. They don't just both coexist, but they are stemming from the same essence. That's the Sikha. So let's get into it. So, explained in Hasidus, God has two mechanisms with which he relates to the world, miracle and nature. The miracle obviously happened more at the beginning of our history and then later less so uh, for various reasons. You know, when you, when, when you raise a child, when the child is a baby and an infant, you take care of them. You, even when they're a young child, you give them everything. And then as they grow up, you allow them to wean off for their own sake so they should become more independent. So perhaps it's explained that that's how God worked with the Jewish people and through us with the world at the beginning of our history. God babied us, he carried us with heavenly clouds and we didn't have to change our clothing. We didn't have to go to work for food, et cetera, et cetera. And then slowly it weaned off and less and less and less until the exile where there's actually no obvious miracles or few and far between. However, uh, this is part of us becoming independent. It's all part of the plan. But there's still obviously miracles from time to time if you look for them sometimes obvious miracles. And these two modes of behavior 
are by design from Hashem. Why? The miracle is the power of Bittel to show the world is nullified to Hashem, and nature is the power of Yichel to show that the world is actually one with Hashem. Let me explain. The purpose of creation is for Hashem to be completely revealed. And why is that a good purpose? Because there's nothing better. Hashem is the only truth. And uh, there's nothing better than the world, than us, becoming aware of that truth. And because of Hashem's love and kindness and the various explanations, Hashem created us, an extension of Him, so that He can share with us goodness. And what's goodness? The absolute truth, Himself. So ultimately, the goal is that we should be born and feel that we're independent and separate, and ultimately come to the realization, and through us, the whole world, that it's all Hashem, because that's the Emes. There's nothing greater than, uh, than coming to that realization. But that has a two-pronged process. When we say that Hashem should be known as the only one, what is Hashem? For starters, is infinity. If something is infinite, there's no space for anything else. So when we're saying that the world will feel Hashem's truth, it has to be a truth that overwhelms the world and breaks nature. And that's the power of miracle. Why is miracle considered a great revelation? It's a revelation of the truth. What's the truth? There's no nature. For example, water doesn't have to flow. Water can stand up if God wills it. Etc. etc. All the miracles that we talk about. Nature doesn't really have a system. The famous story in the Talmud, whoever said that the oil should burn, will say the vinegar should burn. Who said that oil burns more than vinegar? Hashem's in charge. So when Hashem is revealed, infinity is revealed, there's no room for anything else. You can't have infinity plus one. You certainly can't have two infinities, but you can't even have infinity plus something else. So if infinity is revealed, there's no room for us. There's no room for any rules of nature. There's nothing. So what's our relationship there? Bittle. We're nullified. We come to the recognition that we're, we don't exist per se. If we are, it's just, an, just part of Hashem. There's no us. It's just Him. And that's extraordinary. It's special. It's wonderful. That's what a miracle does. It reminds us it's, it's just Hashem. There's no rules, there's no regulations, no systems. There's nothing. How can there be systems when God's here? But then we introduce the concept that God says, you know what? I don't want just the world to be nullified to me because I will reveal my infinity because there's something lacking in that oneness. And that is, yes, Hashem says, I revealed my infinity and the world just stopped its whole system and yielded to my will. But then in a certain way, I didn't unite with the world. I didn't show that the world too is my space because I override it. Miracle overrides nature, the system of creation, the system of the world. It shows that God is infinite, but that infinity somehow doesn't permeate the space, the finite space of the world because the world uh, systems have been suspended when there's a miracle. So there's another side to the coin where Hashem says, in addition to miracle and its wonderful revelation of God's infinity, I also will create nature and operate through nature. And in a sense, there's a beauty to that. Because it shows that not only do I exist if I nullify the world, but I'm also found within the world. You might say yichud versus bitl. Rather than nullification, bitl. This yichud Hashem is, unites with the world. He expresses himself through nature, through the world, the various things, beautiful things that were created. I'm giving an example of marriage to bring this home. It's not a correct example because we're talking about us and Hashem, infinity versus tiny. 
In marriage, it's a relationship of two equals. However, I'm borrowing this example because it's close to our sensibilities and it also has an element of an unconditional relationship like the one we're supposed to have with Hashem and therefore it's able, it's helpful for us to understand and perhaps you might say one of the reasons why God created marriage is because it's one of the analogies of our relationship with Hashem. Our relationship with Hashem is really a combination of all the human relationships. But let's just for a moment borrow that, that, that concept. Marriage has two things. Fundamentally, a marriage is based on unconditional commitment. I'm not, I don't love you because you're smart and you're wonderful and you're kind and you're nice. That's good, but you can have that with a friend. So long as there's an, there's an explicable condition why this relationship exists, it's nice, it's a friendship, it could be a partnership, it could be what have you. But it's not a marriage. The definition of marriage, when you cross that line and say, this is marriage, when you take the covenant, you stand under the chup and you say, this is it, this is my bashar, this is my other half, and suddenly it becomes unconditional. We're in it for the good and for the good. We recognize that two are one. And therefore the relationship is no longer dependent on anything. We call it bris and the covenant, almost like a bris that you give a child at, at eight days old, which represents that you and Hashem are one. Similarly, that's what we do at a wedding. We represent, we understand, we uncover the essence that the two souls are one and becomes unconditional. Once I'm in the relationship, I don't really care if you're smart or not, if you're wonderful or not, if you're nice or not, you're mine. If a marriage is just based on, on adjectives, on attributes, it's not a marriage. And that's fundamental. By the same token, though, if we stop there, we're going to have a shallow marriage. So the guy can get married, he understands the concept of the marital commitment. He's dedicated. Whatever happens, he's there for her. He doesn't care uh, if she's good or bad or wonderful or not. He's committed. Obviously, I'm speaking in a healthy way, not in an abusive way, but let's, in a normal environment. But after days and weeks and months of the marriage, she says, but don't you want to know about me? Don't you want to know which books I like to read? Don't you want to know which music I like to listen to? Don't you want to know the way I think, the way I feel, my likes and dislikes? And, she, and he says, no, nah, I don't need details. You are mine. Why would the details be important? How will they help? They're not going to make a difference of a hill of beans. I've embraced you as you are, and I take you as mine. I want to just point out the obvious that that's what we did with Hashem at Sinai, Nasa and Ishma. When you get married, hopefully before you get married, you do explore properly because you're not talking about God. You're talking about another human being. Uh, etc. So uh, the dating process, hopefully you do explore and find out the person's details before you make that decision. But once you make that decision, once you stand under the chuppah, the commitment is not unlike Sinai. Nasev and Ishma, we accept. So why do I need to know the details? I'm not interested. But at some point, the wife or the husband will say, but I want you to know me. I get it that you're totally committed to the point that you know, you've set your will aside and you're not interested in the details. But now, because if you're connected to me, I want you to be connected to me on my level. I don't want you just to have an essential bond with me. I want that bond to trickle down so that you know me. You might say, I, you have the marital commitment, but to whom? You have the total dedication. But what do you know about that other person? You might say you have respect. But do you have love and knowledge of the other person? Clearly, if you only have the latter, if there's only uh, appreciation and love, you don't have a marriage. It, the fundamental part of marriage, the foundation, is the unconditional commitment. 
But if you have that alone, it's rather shallow. And the full marriage is when you have both steps. And this is not unlike uh, what happened at Sinai. We said, Nasa Benishma. The reason why God gave us the Torah versus other nations, because we didn't ask any questions. Because if you ask questions, you're obviously not one with Hashem. You're not ready to be married. We said, Nasa Benishma, we accept. But then we said, Nishma, we want to understand. And that is also part, a big part of Yiddishkeit. Now that you've committed yourself and taken my Torah with faith, I want you to understand me. I want you to get to know me, says Hashem. The relationship should go further. And the example, another example would be the difference between a servant and a student. Let's think of servant on the highest level. You know, we talk about in Torah. What's an example of a servant? In, in, in a holy, wonderful, special way. Eliezer, the servant of Avram. Or Hagar, the maidservant of Avram who gave up royalty as the princess of the Pharaoh to come be a servant in Abraham's home. Why would someone do that? And the answer is because even though she was royalty and everything else, she realized that these are holy people. These are people that are divine, that are connected to God. And therefore they said, I'm going to yield to you. I want to be your servant. I don't need to know why. I don't need to understand you. Eliezer, and this is the value of a servant. He's an extension of the master's arm. Eliezer went and he was able to find the shidduch for, for, for Yitzchak, and he even used the language, who are you? I'm just an extension of Abraham. It's extraordinary. Abraham is so head and shoulder above, so beyond, that the only way to relate to that is total commitment and servitude. I'm a servant. Wonderful. But then we talk about the relationship of a student, which has a plus over that of a servant, the servant is completely yielded and subjugated. The student appreciates and permeates the wisdom of the teacher. This becomes the yin and the yang of miracle and nature, of God's relationship with the world and with the Jewish people for whom the world was created through Torah. God wants our total commitment as step one but he also wants the integration into our minds and hearts so that we have a relationship with God that is personal. There's some more examples here which are given in the Sikha. Some of these are, are explicit in the Sikha. Some of these I'm borrowing from other places in Hasidus. Um, there's the, the, the fundamental part of Judaism is based on what? Based on faith. You want to take my cards? However, Judaism is based on faith. That's the beginning of everything in Yiddishkeit. We close our eyes in the morning and we say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad. Hashem is one. We close our eyes, total faith. Why do you close your eyes? There's no room for a world. There's no world. There's no me. There's no you. There's nothing. You close your eyes? How is that Jewish? Of course that's Jewish. That's that is the essence of Jewish. Hashem There's nothing. There's nothing to see. But then we open our eyes and we say, Hashem I want you to love God, says God, with your heart and your soul and all your might. Once you've gotten the emes, the truth, there's nothing but God. Once you've gotten that essential point, that Hashem Hashem is the only one. Nothing else really exists. Hashem says, got it. But now I want you invested in that relationship. I want you to love that God. 
that only truth. With all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, everything about you, all the details of your unique personality, all your weaknesses and strengths, everything about each of us that's unique is only one of each of us in all of history. And Hashem wants that you to be brought to the table. But understand that that could be a contradiction if one is truly living on the level of Bittal, where they get it, that there's only one truth, and that's God. How does my personality matter? How do I even get motivated to use my talents and abilities and, and, and feel that I make a difference? And the answer is Hashem wants both things. And this is a reflection of the fact that there's talus and tefillin. And the talus are put on before the tefillin. Chassidus explains talus' faith. That's why it wraps around us. It envelops us like faith. A child, when he's hugged by his mother or father, there's no need to understand. I don't need to know uh, what they're thinking. This is my mommy. I trust her. I'm just embraced. A person wraps himself in a talus. It's a total embrace of Hashem. There's no, there's no questions. There's no need to understand and feel. I'm just lost. I'm, 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 I'm swept away by truth. There's no me. It's just him. Conversely, when you put on the tefillin, suddenly there are themes. The mind and the heart. Integration. Your understanding of this truth. Your feelings about the truth. You really love Hashem. You have awe of Hashem, etc. And Hashem wants that too. Shema, with the eyes closed, and then via hafta. Hashem wants you. Um, I'm quoting here. This is from a different sikha. Same thing. But the Rebbe quotes two phrases that are brought in the Talmud in different places. One in the Babylonian Talmud, one in the Jerusalem Talmud. I believe that's the case. And they're very similar. Everybody knows that language. I was created to serve my maker. That's why we're here. But the same phrase finds itself in, uh, I'm just going to use the, the pointer to be next to it. That same phrase finds itself in these two places. In one place in the Talmud, in one version of the Talmud, the language is, I was not created but to serve my maker. In the other version, the language is, I was created to serve my maker, without the double negative. How do we understand these two things? In Torah, everything has to be perfect and meaningful. So nominally, it's understood that the lower level, is I was created to serve my maker. A person who doesn't have full subjugation, they still maintain a level of ego. And they still think they're important, but at least they understand that their purpose is for their maker. However, a person is truly a, a balmadrege, a person a higher level, I don't know, a tzaddik, or maybe a high level, I don't know, where they get it, that there's a concept where really it's all about Hashem. Aha, they graduate to the level where they're able to say, I was not created but to serve my maker. There is no me. It's just about Hashem. And that's how it's normally looked at. That that's the higher level. And it's true. But the Rebbe comes, as he often does, and turns it on its head and introduces that, in fact, uh, the first the, the, can be higher than the other. The Rebbe says, once a person is truly connected to Torah and Hasidus and etc., and he gets, he gets that first point that I was not created but to serve my maker. He has the counts of a bit. For you and I, I don't know if it's, we're going to integrate it. It's really like a high level of a tzaddik or benini, But at least intellectually, we could know the truth. You need my phone? A 
at least intellectually, we can know the truth that there's nothing. But our, 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 our maker, I was not created. I don't begin to be, but to serve my maker. Then, and what's, what's the, the net takeaway from that? That I don't matter. I'm just here to serve my maker. I'm just a slave to Hashem, a servant. My details are unimportant. My feelings, what I bring to the table, my talents, I don't exist. There's nothing. Comes along the Rebbe and says that then once you get that, once you're permeated by that bitl, by the appreciation that there's nothing but Hashem, you're able to now go to another level and understand if there's nothing but Hashem. So what about me? I have a certain level of smarts, talents, and abilities, and opportunities. Hey, that too must be an extension of Hashem. Let me use it for Hashem's service. And therefore, that becomes a higher level. But it requires first the bitl in order to get the yichud. It requires first the nullification in order to go graduate up or move up to the oneness and integration. It requires first the understanding that there's no me at all. It's just Hashem. And once I get that, I, again, you and I can, can have it at least intellectually in concept. We then move on to a place where we recognize that I ought to use everything at my disposal and all my opportunities and talents and gifts because if everything is Hashem, I'm part of everything. And suddenly I'm able to, to embrace my existence, so to speak, now that it's been recognized that it doesn't exist, but it's whatever it is, is all part of Hashem. And now it becomes a more colorful relationship. So these are the two sides of miracle and nature. Miracle bringing home the truth that there's nothing but Hashem. Nature bringing home the truth that all the details of the world are also a, a manifestation of Hashem. You might say that these two columns are what a Yid experiences on Shabbos versus the weekday. What is Shabbos? It's not just a day to relax. Shabbos, we don't do anything. We just stop being productive. Like, why? And the answer is because Shabbos, in a sense, we recognize the truth. There's nothing but God. It's God's world. It's not my world. I'm not here to do and create. I'm not a creator. I'm a visitor. Or whatever. I don't even exist. I'm just in his living room. So therefore, Shabbos, nothing. It's all Torah, mitzvah, prayer, celebration of Hashem. There's no me. There's no active me. I have no agendas. I have no goals. I have no projects. There's no place for that. It's like someone standing in the presence of the king and, and being busy with his own work. And that's wonderful. So Shabbos is, is a realization of the truth. Hashem Echad, it's all God. So why is there a weekday? And as students of Torah, we don't take anything for granted. God could have made that. There could be just one, one long Shabbos. We could be living like the Jews in the desert. We don't have to work and everything is Shabbos. If the purpose is to manifest the truth, that it's all God, should have been that way. The world should be in a fashion that everything comes for free and easy. And you don't have to work it and earn it. You don't have to use your talents. It just shows up. It's all God. The Shabbos is sitting at his table and all your work is done. No, Hashem made six days as a weekday. And the answer is because that too is a place to manifest the truth that everything is Hashem. Only manifesting it in a more specific fashion that uh, not just in a generality that there's nothing but Hashem, 
but that everything in my daily mundane world, my daily life, my, my, my work, my goals and accomplishments, all of that, I can infuse it also with Shabbos. I can infuse it also with faith and trust in Hashem and our understanding that that too is part of my purpose and ultimately part of the ultimate truth that I'm just an extension of Hashem. So these are the two columns in the relationship that we have with Hashem, uh, the servant, the student. Says Hasidus, where are these two columns come from in the divine light? So those who have studied Kabbalah or Hasidus are familiar that there's two lights. We talk about Hashem's infinity and Hashem's finitude. In Hasidus is a discussion, it's called Soveid and Memale, the infinite light of Hashem, that is the raw divine light without any limitation and definition. And then there's what's called Memale, the finite light that permeates all the worlds, each on its own level. And how did this change come about? Obviously speaking very, very generally, there's a concept called symptom, concealment, contraction. So pre-symptom, we have the infinite light, it's called the raw infinite light of Hashem, undefined, on that level, we don't speak necessarily of Sephiro, that God doesn't have names, God doesn't have attributes. How can he have attributes? Talking about the infinite God. What does infinity mean? Plainness, total purity, just, you know, without any definition, undefined, limitless. And then there was a symptom, a contraction. And not only was a place for a world, but God created, so to speak, superimposed on himself all kinds of names and definitions. We talk about the seven emotions of God, Ten sefirot, the seven emotions, corresponding to seven names. Suddenly, God has names, and there's kindness, and there's discipline, and there's compassion, and there's a victory, and etc. Why are we giving God all these definitions? We almost speak of God in human terms that He has. In fact, we say we're in the image of God because we have the ten sefirot, like God has. Why are we imposing, superimposing upon God all kind of labels and definitions? And when God is just one infinity, why does Kabbalah do this? What's the necessity? How is this helpful? So we'll now understand this. Of course, God is true infinity. Which the definition of infinity means there's no definition. It's just plain infinite power, infinite light. It's just nothing, everything. However, infinity, if it's not able to touch down in the finite, it has a limitation. And then it's not true infinity. For something to be true infinity, it has to also be able to reach the finite space. One example is you can have a brilliant teacher able to expound on very lofty ideas that are brilliant and fantastic. The greatest minds are, are stretched and they're, they're, they're in ecstasy from the wisdom. However, if there's a child in the room or a simpleton who can't understand it, then that mind is not is limited. It may be very lofty, but it's limited. If there is a scholar who truly is, is a, of infinite wisdom, so to speak, if there's such a thing, he or she is able not only to speak on a lofty level, but by the same token, explain it to a two-year-old child or a five-year-old child or a simpleton, because there's no limitation. So if there's true infinity, it manifests in the finite as well. And this becomes the Kabbalistic source and divine light of miracle and nature, respectively, 
the Sovei of the infinite light, pre-Tzimtzum. And then the Memale, the light of God that's been channeled through the 10 Sefirot post-Tzimtzum. Both have the same goal, to show that God's infinity. The former shows infinity in its pure sense, but then we come along and say, but the infinity manifests even down to the minutia of creation, the minutia and the detail of creation. And uh, as I explained that, uh, I remember as a child growing up at learning Hasidus and the first introduction they teach you when you learn Tanya about God's sefirot, is the 10 sefirot and the seven emotions and the human soul mirrors them. And that's how God relates to the world. They often wondered like, why do we need all of these conversations? How is it helpful to talk about God in such human terms, in such forms? Why can't we just leave it at the fact that God created the world because he wanted to? He commands the world into existence. No, Kabbalah tells us uh, uh, he could have commanded the world into existence, but instead he spoke it into existence. And his speech has all kinds of minutia. There's emotions. And Sunday it was chesed. And tomorrow and Monday it was gevura discipline. And the next day and each millennia reflects one of these, uh, these, these sefirot. We, we break, we chop it down to all kinds of emotions. And they're all one included in the other. And that's how the world comes into being. Why do we need this? How is this a compliment to God? And the answer is given. That of course God could create the world by his sheer willpower. In a sense, he does. But when God does that, the world has no relationship with God. The world is nullified. We have the column of bittal. The world is just a command. It's like a servant. It has no opinion. It has no meaning. It has no significance. God in his kindness wanted the world to feel his infinity within its finitude. And therefore God, so to speak, divvied up his light through the prisms of the vessels, etc. as the Kabbalah speaks. And now God suddenly has seven dimensions. The net net of that is that if you look at a created being, take anything, take take a a beautiful flower, right? And one way to look at it is say, wow, look at this flower. God commanded it into existence, how amazing God is. The other is that if you take apart the flower, every molecule and every detail of it is a manifestation of a different divine energy. Every single part of creation reflects God's energy in detail. If you see water, it's an extension of the sephira called chesed kindness. That's why it flows. You see fire, it's an extension of the sephira, the divine energy called givura. Discipline. That's why fire rises up and it and, and it burns and it and it and it disintegrates things into particles, etc. We talk about seven or ten sephira, but really the combination of them create any number of energies, just like the four primary colors that your printer will show you, and they can turn into forty thousand colors with with combinations of the four in various measurements and doses. Similarly, the seven sephira, seven midos with which creation took place. Or, or more broadly, the 10 sefirot, by mixing and matching them, we have every part of creation. So let's personalize it. Look in the mirror and say, hey, who do you see in the mirror? So on the one hand, you see what? A, a being that was created by God's command. Beautiful, amazing, extraordinary. God is great, but distant. If there wasn't Simpson and there wasn't Sephiroth, there wasn't the various names of God, that would be the end of the story. Me and God have no connection, but God commanded me to exist and I'm here. So that shows how great God is, but distant. But God wanted to be close. 
Because when where do you see his true infinity and oneness? That it permeates everything. And therefore, when you look in the mirror now and you recognize, hey, every single part of yourself is a manifestation of another part of Hashem, because where else did it come from? There is no other source. Down to the minutia. So your power to see, for example, comes from the sphere of chesed. And the power to speak will come from the sphere of malchut, etc. And, and, and not just in, in generalities of all human beings, but each person, the specific the specification of their personality, um, as expressed in their soul and perhaps in their Hebrew name. It's famous that the Rebbe sat down and he, and he analyzed people's names in the Fabringen that he had in Paris when he went to visit his mother in, in, in 1947. And by virtue of the name, he was able to say everything about that person because a mystic can tell you everything about you down to the nitty gritty detail of you based on your soul because your soul is just an expression of various divine truths. I'm not going to speculate why the Rebbe did that, but it's certainly very much related to the Rebbe's M.O., which is to show that everything is Hashem. Not only that there's nothing, that there's nothing but Hashem, but that everything is Hashem, both things. Not only is the world nothing, it's just God, but the world is an extension of God and you can find God in everything. And therefore, and therefore we now have these two columns, and we don't have only one of them. We have the two calendars, the solar and the lunar. We have miracle and we have nature. We have the two parts of our service of Hashem, servant and student, faith and intellect, commitment and understanding. You might say mitzvahs, which we do with Kabbalah sale, just accepting the yoke. We don't do it just because we understand it. We do it because God said so. And then there's the understanding, the Torah study, Etc. Both all stemming from the fact that God has, so to speak, a two-column system. He has his pure infinity, and then he has where that infinity will manifest in a finite. Just like the true teacher has the ability to teach brilliant students and also has the ability to zero it down to the child. So that, that represents to us the two columns that the Sikha speaks of. However, the Sikha doesn't stop at that. The Sikha then says, that these two columns are one and the same. Remember where we started from at the top of the Sikha. HaChodesh and Tazir are opposites, but they come together in the same Shabbos. The sun and the moon are opposites, but they're integrated into the same calendar. The Torah speaks of the month of Nisan as the first month of the year. So there's an integration. And the Rebbe says, because at the end of the day, these two columns are not two columns at all. They come and stem from the fact that there's God's essence, which is beyond both. And that's what we're going to explore now uh, in the rest of the Sikha. It's one thing to say that God has infinity and he also has the ability to be in the finite. There's another to say that there's God's essence, which is beyond both, and therefore will manifest itself equally in the infinite and the finite, and now the two become one. Let's explore it. So what I did is I took the same spreadsheet that's in front of you, and I copied and pasted it on the next screen. 
This is the same exact spreadsheet, but I just added a right column, which shows the two combining into one. So let's go through it. Remember, we have a two column system, miracle and nature. But being that we're understanding that miracle and nature are not really two separate things, they're both an extension of God's one essence. Not just the fact that miracle is God's infinity and nature is God's finitude as two separate abilities, but really there's a higher thing that unites them and that is there's God's essence and therefore is expressed both in miracle and nature in infinite and finitude. And therefore there's gonna be an integration of both. And the integration goes in both directions, top down, bottom up. How will it be? A, we're gonna find miracles within nature like Hanukkah and Purim. They won the war of Hanukkah, it was miraculous. It made no sense, absolutely no sense. Tiny band of men against a giant army, but they had to fight. It came through nature. What is that about? And certainly Purim, which is a miracle, which was completely enclosed in nature to the point that you can almost ignore it if you like, but then you realize it's an obvious net miracle. What is that about? That means that the miracle touches down within nature because the two aren't in conflict. Miracle, God's infinity, God's pure truth permeates nature, doesn't just tolerate it as a separate column, but actually works hand in hand with it. So that's the top-down miracle within nature. I'm looking at the right column down. Number two, though, the opposite is also true. We find nature has a miraculous element to it, and namely the consistency of the cycle of constellations and seasons. The seasons, the cycle, the sun, the moon, they haven't aged. Uh, they don't lose minutes like your clock does for thousands of years. They work exactly to the T in perfect precision. And how is that a glimpse of the miraculous? Because within nature, the nature of things is that they start to disintegrate the moment they're created. Our sages tell us a child, the moment he's born, begins to dry up. Everything in our world is a sum of parts. And at the moment of its creation, it starts to disintegrate back to the parts, nothing remains stagnant. It's the, the, everything is dynamic. Everything is constantly changing and evolving back or devolving back to the particles. And that's why nothing lasts forever. It's not that one day it disappears. Every moment it becomes less and less of a, of a steadfast existence. However, within that world of nature, which means limited truths that will constantly disintegrate because all they are are sum of parts, we see the concept of consistency when it comes to the constellations of the heavenly spheres that God showed us that no, within nature, he embedded something that's somewhat miraculous or a glimpse of the miraculous is consistency. The seasons never change. They're not off by a minute. The sun and the moon, they're always there. They show up. They don't change. They don't get smaller or bigger. They are who they are. And this is true with all the Tzvash and the heavenly spheres, which, uh, they, they don't have to give birth to offspring in order to continue, but they remain permanent. And permanence is not natural in the way we see nature. And therefore, being that there's permanence in nature, namely in the heavenly spheres, and also within our realm of world down here on earth, there's permanence in that each species and person and plant and what have you, an animal, are, continue, at least in the species, that it could go on forever. Uh, this represents a miracle a combination of miracle and nature from the bottom up.
And I want to give an example within the human being of these two sides. Top down, miracle can permeate nature, like Hanukkah and Purim. Bottom up, we can find that nature is, elevates itself to the miraculous, namely in that consistency. Within the human soul, we have these two columns that we've been speaking about, the infinite and the finite, the soyvim and the mamalim. Obviously, within the human being, there's no such thing as infinity, but as borrowed terms, namely the willpower and the intellect. Willpower represents infinity. I want it because I want it. I don't need to have why. If a person wants something, true desire, rotsay, is an extension of soul, and it doesn't have a why. You don't want it because. You want it, period. It's an extension of you. And that's why the principle is, nothing can really stand in the way of will. If you will it, you can accomplish it. Because will is, is an extension of soul. It's a glimpse of infinity within, the, of course, the, the framework of, of a human soul. Intellect, though, is a very calculated thing. I want something because. How much do I want it? Depends how, how much that because is. And these are two sides of our personalities. We all have these two sides. As a reflection of, of the divine, if you will, we all have the part of us that is, you know, our full self, our soul, our willpower, and we have the part of us that's calculated and measured, our intellect, and etc. the lower levels of our soul. And generally, we see this as two columns. There are things in life that we want with our whole soul, willpower, perhaps our relationship with our children, etc. Things that are part of that, you know, we, we invest our whole soul in it. It's life itself. And then there are things, perhaps most things in life, that our relationship to them is very calculated. We want it because it's because of a utilitarian reason. And these are, again, within the human soul, within the micro. Um, a, 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 we see the combination of, of the greater and the smaller, the infinite and the, and the finite, and the two don't seem to merge or cross. Says the Rebbe and says Hasidus that just like we just explained that these two columns of miracle in nature, even though they're two columns, they're ultimately coming stemming from one essence, and therefore we'll have uh, the two of them merging as per we just discussed. And in both ways, top down and bottom up, because that's how you know that something is truly one. On both directions, the two are connected and integrated. Similarly, but this way of example within a person, you can find that even though willpower is the soul itself, and intellect seems to be a very calculated sort of utility of the person, they're not two people. And here's how we see it. The willpower affects the intellect. It's something called bribery. I'm not talking bri bribery, of course, can be an unkosher thing, but sometimes my mind will understand, will tend to understand things based on the way my soul, my willpower wills it. My mind becomes formed. It doesn't have to be a bad thing, it can be a good thing. A Jew understands Torah intellectually because their soul, their will is rooted in Hashem. So the mind now is formed, not just by mind itself, but it's formed by that which is beyond mind. It's extraordinary. It's a glimpse of miracle coming within nature. 
Conversely, there's the other side, my item number two. is a principle. When a person chooses an area of Torah study, a person should choose to study subjects that they're drawn to naturally, that they want. That's willpower. Like why? Why should I choose subjects that I, that I enjoy on a level of will? Subjects should be chosen based on their intellectual value. But the fact is that we see that a person who studies a subject that they have no interest in, their mind will shut down. They're just not interested. Because mind is not separate from soul, from will. At the end of the day, there's one soul. The essence of the soul is the source of willpower, the greater soul, and of intellect, the, the, the lesser soul, if you will. And therefore, yes, choose areas of study that you, that you enjoy, and they will be manifest. By the way, this is true not just in study. It's probably in every area of life. A career path. By, on the one hand, a career path is clearly a specific choice. It's not about your soul. It's utilitarian. Find out what you're good at and do it. It's what works that matters. However, often people choose career paths based on, on a makeup of their soul that's deeper than they can explain. They just feel drawn in that direction. And then they will be more successful. So again, we see here within the micro, within the person, that the ruts on the greater soul and the intellect, mind and heart are really integrated and one affects the other and one is elevated into the other, much like nature and miracle ultimately are one and the same. And the same truth, the same combination uh, can be explained on all the levels that we discussed earlier. Let's go down the list. So we talked about the fact that uh, the goal is uh, Hashem offers us a relationship of bittel, where we're nullified to Hashem, or Yichud, where we become one with Hashem. And we explain that we have two columns. A, a bittel represents when Hashem reveals his infinity, and Yichud is when Hashem reveals his finitude post symptom with the ten attributes, etc., and leaves leave space for us and for our personalities. Says the Rebbe, but on a deeper level, both stem from the same truth. Ain't it Mavade? In truth, in Hashem, it's true. In truth, it's not about the infinite light, which makes the world totally nullified. It's not about the finite light, which, which finds itself in every detail of creation. It's about the essence of God and by, the, by virtue of his essence, everything will be an extension of him. The infinity and the finitude Essence covers every single thing. There's no place devoid of that essence. And therefore, we manifest in both ways. And both are one and the same. To use the analogy of marriage that I used, um, um, again, a marriage, a healthy marriage will have both commitment as well as love and appreciation of the person. Nominally, we see this as two columns. And they are exercised and expressed in different times and in different relationships of the marriage. You might have love in marriage, but you have to also have respect and give the other person their space and their and the commitment, etc. There's different manifestations in different places where these two are manifest. But ultimately, they both come from one and the same place. When there's an appreciation that these two souls are really, in essence, one. So therefore, yes, their con connection will be unconditional, total commitment, and by the same token, 
that connection will be that ultimately they will come to over time as the marriage deepens to appreciate every detail of the spouse, not just the general commitment that I don't care that you want something foolish, but if you want it, you get it. If you want it, then I want it. It begins to integrate into the person and because you come to a place where you realize that the two are bound. Moving right along the example of a servant versus a student. And we said the servant is the column where we are nullified to Hashem. We don't have any will like Eliezer, the son, the student, the servant of Abraham. Abraham's so great. How can I have an opinion? I'm just the extension of his arm. Certainly us with Hashem. But then we say, Hashem says, I want you to study Torah and also be like a student where you appreciate Hashem. And these are two separate services. They're two different roles. But perhaps you might say that ultimately there's the relationship of a child and a parent with Hashem, which manifests, which expresses both of these. A child on the one hand has total nullification to the parent, a real healthy child relationship to a parent. Whatever the parent wants, that's what I want. I don't need to know why. It's my parent. It's my kid. Do I need to know why? Conversely, if it's my child, I appreciate every detail about the child. Of course, I love the child unconditionally. But I also will tell you all about how smart they are and how cute they are and how wonderful they are because they're mine. And if they're mine, there's no detail that's unimportant. I hope this is coming through correctly, properly. Even this essential bond. Of course it's unconditional, you love the kid no matter what. But by the same token, if it's an essential bond, there's no detail that's unimportant. And that's not something to celebrate. In fact, every detail becomes almost of essential importance because we've graduated to the place of the yes. We talked about the, the, the Shema and the Vyahafta, which is pretty much explicit in the Sikha, the service of Hashem, of total faith. You close your eyes and there's nothing but Hashem. I was not created but to serve my maker, manifest in the talus. And then we talked about the fact that there's another relationship that, has, that we say, Vyahafta, Hashem wants you to love him with all your heart and all your soul expressed in the film. I was created to serve my maker. I'm going to find all the details of my personality and bring them to the service of Hashem. These two are opposites. They're both important. They bring out different parts of Hashem, the infinity and the finite. But nominally, on the face of it, without this deeper explanation of this, they're opposites. They're almost contradictory. But we try to have both. We want the cake, we want to eat it. Hashem wants you to, to have both aspects. He wants that total faith, and then he wants you to be a, a student of Torah and understand it. But ultimately, both come from one and the same place. Because a yid is one with Hashem in essence. I'm sort of repeating myself now. Because the child, it's a relationship of a child to a parent, and even more so, we're one essence with Hashem. And therefore, Hashem express, expects and empowers that within us, we can have both sides of this coin. Because really, they're, they're one and the same when you touch the essence. Here's my favorite part of this. Right here on this line here. This is going to be an excellent example. It's almost like a takeaway from this whole thing. So I approach my service of Hashem. How should I approach it? Should I approach it with Kabbalah sale? I'm a servant. I'm going to serve Hashem every day with acceptance of the yoke. I don't have to enjoy it. I don't have to have pleasure of it. 
Or will I understand it and feel it and have pleasure? Well, if I just go with acceptance, now I know I'm committed. I know I'm one with Hashem. I know I'm a servant. If I start having pleasure, aha, it shows a virtue that now I'm enjoying, I'm connected. But there's me in the picture. And I'm lacking that total subjugation and bittle. So I'm sort of compromising on one or the other. Comes along that Eben says that ultimately, once I realize that I'm Hashem's child and I'm one with Hashem, I come to a place where even though I'm approaching it with total blind faith, Hashem wants it, I do it. And that itself gives me pleasure. But how can you have pleasure? You're just doing it out of blind faith. But it's my God. It's Hashem. You could see this in a marriage. There's a long and a long time, and there's a real meaningful marriage. So yes, initially you approach it that whatever she wants, she gets. Why? There's no why. She can want something that makes no sense. That's what she wants. She gets it. That's the marriage covenant. But ultimately, it comes a point where the where in a healthy marriage with Hashem's help, the, the two become truly connected. She can want something that to you is totally nonsensical. It's upside down. But if she wants it, not only does she get it, you give it with the greatest joy. You start to, to have pleasure in, in giving that. Why? What do you mean why? This is, this, is your, this is your essential bond. And therefore, if this is what she wants, it's what you want. In the language of Chassidus, it's it, it becomes a tainog in Kabbalah cell. It becomes a pleasure in doing something without any pleasure, without any understanding. And here you just combined the both columns. This becomes a takeaway for us that uh, Hasidus wants us to connect to Hashem on both levels. And ultimately, uh, this is what Mashiach is all about. That uh, it, 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 that on the one hand, there's the world is totally bottled and the ain't about it is nothing but Hashem. And on the other hand, the world will remain a world. It's not going to fly away and disappear and burn up. It will remain a world with all of its details. And within each detail, Hashem's presence will be manifest. Ultimately, the combination of both of these in one. I'm, 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 I'm not resisting the temptation to just mention in connection to, to the Rebbe, which we're getting ready for the 120th birthday. Uh, what is a Rebbe? Obviously, it's something extraordinary. But the Rebbe and Chassidus and the Tzadikim who are giving us all these concepts, you might say, you might say, there's you and I to whom the world is very important. There's a Tzadik, a Rebbe, Tzaddik, to whom the world means nothing. You ever meet one of these great mystics? They don't need to eat. They don't need money. They're totally beyond. They don't see any people around them. They're in a different world. What, is, what did we see by the Rabbein? We saw a total combination. On the one hand, clearly head and shoulder above where the world means nothing. Has no need for physical comforts and physical needs. Totally head and shoulder above in a, in a different world. 
tzaddik living and thinking about the Rebbe's life. It's not here the place to elaborate, but the way that Rebbe lived and ate, and, and it, it was nothing. There was no Elam Hazar whatsoever. And by the same token, if you could say so, that Rebbe was the biggest gentleman. The Rebbe appreciated every single child, man, woman, lahavdil, Jew, non-Jew. We met and appreciated the details of their personality and related to them and empowered them. It is said about Moshe Rabbeinu that his name is Moshe because he was plucked from the water, which is a symbol of the greatest heights. Plucked from heaven. Water is heaven, Shemaim. He's a soul from heaven, from another world. He's like a visitor, like an angel walking around in a body. And Shemadatil is walking around in a body. Conversely, the same name Moshe is also given because Moshe means to draw forth. He's, he's not just separate and apart from all of us, but he draws forth our potential. That's why there's the Moshe Shebekir, but the little Moses in each of us, as the eighth day band likes to sing. The little Moses in you. Because what is a Moses? What is a Moshe Rabbeinu? Of course he's otherworldly. He's an extension of Hashem, like Evan Hashem is, but he is so unadulterated, un, undiluted through the journey, and he's in a body even as he is in Atzilus. And by the same token, He's completely integrated. And he relates to every other human being on their level. That's true infinity. That's true essential connection with Hashem and with the Neshama of Rebbe Yid. That even as he removed, he's totally integrated. And in the Rebbe's case, they're integrated with knowledge of the sciences. I mean, there's no part of the world that he didn't embrace, so to speak, even as it meant nothing to him. Because he integrated both. And his message was to bring to the world the essence of Hashem is the only truth. And the essence of Hashem means that there's nothing other than Hashem. And therefore, nothing else matters. And by the same token, everything matters because everything is an absolute manifestation of Hashem's truth. Every part of nature matters that Eben maintained that every, that to the scientists, that every area of science and the new revelations of science is not only not in conflict with faith, but will prove faith. And the same thing is every encounter, every meeting that the Rebbe had with every man, woman, child, Lahavdil, Jew, and Genta, he saw it as critical to, to, the, to the plan of Alakus, because there's nothing that can be extra and dispensable. It's an extension of the absolute essential truth that ain't Ibn Mubadi, there's nothing but the one truth of Hashem.